1: my car. Yes, we've done a few episodes in cars. We've done them in Ubers. Even one time, I did a podcast from the airplane. <laughs> yes, I was on a commercial jet. I, had the, uh, I, I didn't have anyone sitting too close to me. It was in the days when, you know, the planes used to not be that full. I guess they might be like that now, although I haven't flown in a long, long time, so how would I know? (laughs) But uh, it's interesting, you know, lots of of different places to broadcast from. Anyway, welcome to all as we are uh, approaching Thanksgiving, the time of year to count our blessings and be grateful for what we have. And in the midst of such a difficult year for so many, if you're not encountering those difficulties, and even if you don't celebrate Thanksgiving, if you're outside of the U.S., it's a good time to just remember all of the uh, all of the good things we have. You know, always ask yourself compared to what? Always ask compared to what. Uh, and no matter what, I am sure that everybody listening to this episode is very lucky, very fortunate compared to probably half to two-thirds, of the entire human race, the entire world's population. So we have that to keep in mind. Anyway, today, our guest will be Charles Goodart, and uh, there is a law named after him. So you are going to hear a man who has a law named after him. (laughs) What do you think about that? Uh, Pretty good. Yes, go on Wikipedia and you can read it for yourself. That's what I did before the interview. We'll be talking about aging, demographics, age reversal, and inequality as far as uh, income distribution goes. But uh, it's better than the central planners planning for income inequality, right? That's not the way to do it. Let the market do it. It does a pretty decent job at it. We do not have the market doing it now very well. Why? Because there's so much distortion, so much government interference. And speaking of which, Did you catch the news that the Fannie Mae loan limits are going to be increasing as if we needed any more stimulation for the the housing market, right? It is absolutely stimulated beyond comprehension right now. And uh, to add to that, they're going to increase the loan limits. Wow, you can't make this stuff up, can you? And tomorrow, time permitting, we will be looking at some statistics as to how many tenants feel confident that they can pay the rent. And we'll also be looking at the expiring stimulus programs. But there are some new ones coming our way. They may be better, they may be worse. We will see. But before we get to our guest today, I wanted to bring another special guest on. Her name is Alexa, and Alexa wants to talk to us today about inflation before we get to our guest. So, Alexa, play Jason Hartman's real estate update. Jason, here's the latest from your Flash Briefing. In today's briefing from Jason Hartman... During times of economic slowdown, the Fed usually cuts interest rates to encourage borrowing and spending. During times of inflation, the Fed usually raises interest rates to make it more expensive to borrow, causing the economy to cool. Then there are times like nowadays, when it appears that the economy is in a recession while inflation is still a problem. This is not good news. Forget the mortgage meltdown. Inflation will be the largest story of the decade. What can we do and what does it really mean when there are big bank failures and many, many more to come? The average American hasn't had a real wage increase in 40 years. The Federal Reserve is becoming more and more powerless to impact the global economy. There is a major consolidation of wealth among the rich and powerful while the middle class is struggling with this transfer of wealth in our winner-take-all society. Inflation will decrease the purchasing power of tens of millions of people. And we're in for a decade of significant inflation. In fact, it is the story of our time. It is time to take a holistic look at our investments and our spending habits. How do you protect yourself and your family in these turbulent financial times? Well, I have good news. In the coming weeks, we'll explore how inflation and other financial issues impact our lives and our investments. All right, I hope you enjoyed that. And now without further ado, let's get to our guest. Oh, but wait, how about Black Friday? Yes, many of you have asked about that. So pandemicinvesting.com slash Black Friday for our Black Friday super special, the lowest price of the entire year on our bundle of wonderful things, the Pandemic Investing course beautifully presented in a fantastic online format, property tracker membership, social networking community, all kinds of stuff. So go to pandemicinvesting.com slash Black Friday. That's pandemicinvesting.com slash Black Friday for that. And here is our guest. It's my pleasure to welcome Charles Goodhart and his colleague Manoj Pradhan, and we are going to be talking about Goodhart's Law and the new book, The Great Demographic Reversal, Aging Societies, Waning Inequality, and an Inflation Revival. Charles Goodhart is member of the Bank of England's Monetary Policy Committee and former professor at the London School of Economics, developer of Goodhart's Law. You can look that up in Wikipedia, but of course, we'll talk about it today today. And he is the son of Arthur Lehman Goodhart, who was the first American to be the master of an Oxford college and the brother of House of Lords member William Goodhart and leading British conservative politician, Sir Philip Goodhart. Quite a pedigree. And his new book, we'll talk about that today. So I'm really looking forward to this. Welcome to both of you. Thank you. Yeah. First, I'd like to start off uh, with Manoj, maybe. And can you explain your research and how you became affiliated with uh, Charles? So Charles and I worked
2: on this idea when we were both at Morgan Stanley in the economics team. And that's where we talked about what demographics would do, how debt might or might not stand in the way. And that was something that was taken on in a presentation to the BIS at their annual seminar, which then developed into a working paper <laughs> And that's where we were encouraged to write the book. So we've written this book together. It's it's been fantastic working with him, and um, I'm enjoying every minute of it.
1: Excellent, excellent. Well, for either of you, what is the general thesis of the demographic reversal? What, What do you mean when you say that?
0: Well, what we mean is that there were some very strong forces causing disinflation, reduction of inflation over the last 30 years, and these are now reversing so that the forces that caused the inflation to come way down and be held down to about 2% or even lower recently are going to reverse now, and that's going to reverse all the factors that we had earlier, so that the, the inflation is going to start rising again, inequality within countries is going to go down, and there's going to be a very severe problem about dealing with debt if and when interest rates start rising, there are two main forces really that have leading to uh, the disinflation. The first one has been globalization, whereby first Eastern Europe, after the fall of the Iron Curtain, joined the world's trading system, and then China did too as well. And that has meant that the available working population for anyone who can shift their production from one place to another, has more than doubled over the last 30 to 40 years. The blue line on the left was available to uh, producers and manufacturers at the beginning of our period in about 1980. And the yellow line was the additional workers from Eastern Europe and China. And the increase in them would have led to a huge increase in the working-age population. And if you can see that chart, you can see that it, the yellow and the blue line start turning around at about 2010, and now start right. declining. Only so, so
1: let me just ask about that a little bit. So you're saying that um, we would have much more inflation baked into the system if we didn't have globalization and probably technology as well. Those have yeah. been... Disinflationary, right?
0: And again, on the right hand side, you can see the increase in the working age population from year to year, which goes on jumping upwards again to just around 2010. And from now on is going to go rapidly downhill. Um, that's partly because say, China is, going, and much of Europe, the working age population is actually going to shrink. In other countries, because of the decline in the birth rate, working age population will at best stagnate. And this was further reinforced by the change in the ratio of dependents, that is the young who are too, old, too young to work and those who are above the retirement age. Now, the globalization actually reduced world inequality because of the shift of production, particularly manufacturing, from the high-wage countries like the US and Europe to the low-wage countries like China and Eastern Europe. You can see the left-hand column and the ratio of the wages of the American worker to the Chinese worker, which was about 35 as far back as 2000, is only about five. That's a huge change. The Chinese workers have done extremely well. The American workers have done extremely badly. And the same is true to a lesser extent about Western Europe and Eastern Europe. And since there are many more Chinese, and Asians, South Koreans, Vietnamese, and so on, than there are Americans and Europeans. It has meant that world inequality has declined, while inequality within each country has actually been increasing quite sharply because the workers, particularly the relatively unskilled, have had a very bad time. In addition to that, there's been the effect of the dependency ratio. The number of young has been declining quite sharply as the birth rate has gone down. Well, the number of the old has been increasing very rapidly, particularly the oldest old, who are likely to double over the next 15 or so years. And as you get older, the likelihood of having an incapacitating illness like dementia or Parkinson's or just arthritis increases and increases, which means that there is a huge need for additional carers. And the need for Medicare, the need for the need for medical assistance, the need for personal assistance of care for the old is going to mean that the expenditures on this are going to be rising very sharply. With the result that even before the COVID-19 affected the world, uh, the likely increase in public sector deficits and in debt, public sector debt, uh, was growing uh, just rapidly. And of course, the coronavirus has increased this even more so. And of course, the private sector has now massively increased its debt. So that the debt ratios that we now have around the world uh, have been just jumping up very, very sharply. And if interest rates go up, and unfortunately we think they're likely to do so, that is going to put a huge burden both in the public sector uh, and on the private sector. Um, now, our viewpoint on this is un- both rather grimmer, rather more pessimistic than the mainstream, which expects there's going to be interest rates are going to be terribly low, for, exceptionally low for a very, very long time. Lower for longer than it is called. We don't agree. The main reason, I think, why the mainstream view this is because of the experience of Japan. And now I'm going to hand over to my colleague, Manoj, uh, who has done much more work on Japan than I have. So Manoj- Japan is a
1: very interesting case study for sure. So these low interest rates, so your basic thesis then is the low interest rates won't last, and when they go away, it is going to place significant hardship on the economy and widen the uh, divide even more so, right?
0: Absolutely. And the best way of getting out of too high a debt is to grow faster. But here, the decline in the growth of the working age population, in many cases, an absolute cutback in the working age population, is going to mean the growth of anything is going to slow down even further from the relatively slow levels that we've had over the past 10 years or so, because the rate of growth of GDP, the overall economy, is a function of the number of workers times the increase in their productivity. And productivity has been poor, and the number of workers coming into the system is now going to actually reduce. So we're going to have fewer workers. It would take a productivity miracle for us to be able to grow out of this particular problem.
1: Okay, so we do have a couple of cross currents, though. Number one being obviously automation, you know, still someone needs to operate the robots, right? You know, number two is, and you alluded to it, uh, I've been talking a long time about the exploitation of Africa for, you know, the next move for offshoring being Africa, but Africa is a much different case than China. You know, it's a lot of little countries with conflicting sort of tribalism and you know, language. I mean, Africa is just a whole different thing than, than China, isn't it?
0: Oh, absolutely. And I'm going to let Manoj talk about China as well. Sure. But we see the decline in the working age population being such and the need for personal care for the old. And if you ever had anything to do with dementia, you will know that robots just don't cut it. What you need is in in, in emotional support. And the emotional quotient of a robot is absolutely zero.
1: You mean you're talking about the care of elderly now? I, exactly. I was talking about the manufacturing on the assembly lines and such. Yeah, yeah. I, I get it. Yeah, you're talking about two issues. Sure.
2: So so the way we've thought, we've thought about quite a few things. In fact, some of the objections that you've got um, are things that we have covered in the book and they fall into a broader set of categories. Along with Africa, India and parts of South America also have dependency ratios that will not rise and be challenging for quite a while more. The second issue is that perhaps all uh, the people can uh, work much later on in their lives? The third one is automation. And in fact, the, the last one that uh, I'll, I'll cover very shortly is, is if all of the things we're saying uh, are likely to happen with aging, why hasn't it happened in Japan? But let me let me walk you through a couple Japan of the things. Japan is
1: aging itself out of existence with its, you know, low, very insanely low birth rates. Same with Western Europe and Russia. No, no birth rate and uh, aging populations in in all cases. But go ahead.
2: No, it's a, you're absolutely right. It's a very dramatic story. And you know, you're going to see that in Germany, you're going to see that in North Asia, you're going to see that in Russia, where there are other issues uh, related to the rate at which uh, males are, are not surviving uh, into late ages. But uh, let, let me address some of the questions you've had. First, I think technology, uh, we want to think that technology has the ability to crush a lot of the employment in repetitive tasks. The reason for that is that, as Charles was saying, and that's why the robotic story about looking after the elderly is important, if robots can't look after the elderly directly, what we need is a reallocation of labor from one part of the economy to the other. So to the extent that many jobs will be crushed in manufacturing, that is actually something we're counting on. If that doesn't happen, our thesis becomes profoundly more powerful. Uh, And let me explain why. What happens is, if you look at the demographic projections of the UN population statistics, they're scary enough as it is. But what we don't realize, because we're not seeing those numbers, is as the elderly begin to dominate the population um, and they follow the working age population, many more of them are going to live to a much longer age. And as they live longer and longer, the risk and the incidence of dementia rises almost exponentially. Now, these are diseases that we live with for a very long period of time. They need carers, they need attention, which is what Charles was alluding to. And this is what Charles and I call socially productive work. We do have to look after people who have contributed to our societies, but it's not economically productive in the classic sense. The services being produced are consumed one time by the elderly and the elderly themselves then don't go on to produce anything else. So the the demographic picture will become even more dire if we start deflecting some of that available labor force to look after the elderly without crushing jobs in manufacturing. So we, we need that story to play itself out. We are depending on that story to play itself out. The second part. Okay. Of Africa, so first
1: off, when when you say you sure. look at the UN statistics and they're scary enough, what exactly do you mean by that? Do you mean population growth? Do you mean the age distribution of populations in these different places we talked about? Because we've got uh, coming at us an empty planet eventually, right? But not for a while. So, you know, that's a curve, right? But- Go ahead.
2: So you're you're, you're right, actually, both the metrics that you suggested, it's it's not just the size of the populations. In fact, the labor force, it's also the composition, which is that it's not the young that are forming a large increase in what economists would call the dependency ratio, which is the sum of the young and the old supported by workers. It's the elderly who are not going to rejoin the labor force. But it's also one more thing, which is that the incidence of these headwinds that you describe is happening in all the. Economies that today make up the bulk of the contribution to global growth. Every theater in the global economy that is a large mover and shaker is going to see a demographic decline, which will be a significant headwind. And the likes of India and Africa and uh, Southern American states have the ability to grow fast, but like you said, they don't have the uh, administrative infrastructure. We don't think they have the ability to build human capital quickly. And together, that means. They can't really export labor because that's politically just impossible at the moment. They can import capital to an extent that they will do well, but they can't import it and transform it into an output at the rate that will offset the demographics that are available in the rest of the world. That's just not going to happen, we think.
1: OK, so uh, tell us why the dependency ratio is so important and you well, know maybe ferret that out a little bit more for people, if you would
0: well let me let me take that on. First of all, uh, two reasons why a increase in the ratio of workers uh, is disinflationary. The first one is that you don't hire a worker unless they produce more than you pay them offer obviously. And what's more, the workers have got to save for their own retirement. So the higher the ratio of workers to dependents, the more disinflationary the system is. Well, dependents, the young and the old, consume, but they don't produce. And therefore, by definition, they're more inflationary. Moreover, when the number of young started to decline and we got all the increase in consumer durables, there was an enormous increase in the participation rate of women. And that meant that there was a shift out of home production, which did not count towards GDP, to into women working in the labor force, which did count towards GDP. So in a sense, the rate of growth of output was considerably over uh, over exaggerated during the years when the dependency ratio was improving.
1: OK, that's that's really interesting. So what you're saying is that the domestic work at the home is not counted in GDP. Correct. Which we We all know that. And so when women shifted into the workforce, the GDP numbers went up, as you, yep. as you would think, there's more production, there's more people in the workforce. But what what but what does that mean? So so in other words, that wasn't well, it was an increase, but it wasn't. I mean, I, I, I don't know, you know, then there the, then there became legions of housekeepers. So,
0: well, yeah, I And mean, the thing is that when somebody buys a clothes washer that adds to GDP, when they wash clothes at home by themselves, it does not add to GDP. So where shift from washing everything by hand at home, which used to be the way things were done, to having a clothes washer and going out to work in the labor force and producing more led to a sharp rise in the rate of growth of output overall. But the number of clothes that actually got washed didn't change
1: very much. So what does that mean? What Where, where do we go with that? Does well, that just what mean that we won't see... We won't see that kind of increase in the future because the women are already in the workforce now.
0: Exactly. So that benefit to growth is is been done. And now we've got the opposite effect with the rate of growth of the number of retired increasing very sharply. So the, the dependency ratios are now going to worsen because the number of people who are old and retired is going to increase as a considerable proportion of the total population and they need a great deal of care and looking after. As Manoj said, dementia increases exponentially. Once you get over 85, the likelihood of needing a considerable amount of support and care, and that has to be done by people, it can't be done by robots, increases to something like about 70% of of those of that age group. When you get to about over 90, it increases I, to almost 100%. I hundred Fair people are centenarians can't look after themselves.
1: Fair enough. However, you are making one assumption, which may be valid for a long time, but probably not forever, is that, you know, there won't be treatments, cures, advanced. you know, I mean, of course that's a possibility, but a slow process.
0: Indeed, and you certainly can't rely on it, and to rely on the ability. And the Medicine has done wonderful things in dealing uh, with cardiovascular, with dealing with cancer, uh, with dealing with cataracts and things like that. Everything under the neck, they've dealt with magnificently. But the success so far in dealing with problems related to the working of the brain has actually been horribly disappointing, 90 or so drugs that have been tried, only about two or three have had any beneficial effect
2: whatsoever, and even that has been slight. Jason, let's look at it this way. I mean, you know, first, we would love to be wrong. It really would give us immense pleasure to know that uh, there has been a way out of here. And a few, a small laundry list of things that could prove us wrong are the following. If we get a cure, pretty much the way we're looking for a cure for COVID, if we can get a cure for dementia and old age-related diseases, or as the WHO has been pointing out, a lot of it can be prevented. People could work till later on in their life. Second is if a lot of work could be transformed from physical work to mental work. Being old helps you do that, but physical work is still hard when you're aging. Second is if AI turns out to be an absolutely fantastic game changer for productivity, not just for the few jobs that we can see a major impact in, but just all around everywhere, including caring. Um, and the last bit really is if policy don't have to wait for a crisis to show up at their doorsteps and take action now uh, to really address some of the issues we've raised in this book, but we don't see any of that happening at the moment. Yeah,
1: yeah, that's very much wishful thinking on the part of government. (laughs) (laughs) government. This will be continued on the next episode. Thank you for listening and happy investing.